Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Madam's Cast. Uh, however, you're joining us across the internet, whether you've downloaded or hopping about from one platform to another, or if you've accidentally hit the wrong button and you've got no idea why you're listening to the Madam's Cast, it doesn't matter. You're welcome. Please stay, pull up a chair. We're going to have a long, old fashioned conversation with a selection of people all about the world of food. Um, and today I have a very exciting guest, uh, someone I've been looking forward to speaking to for a little while now, actually. Um, although I don't know whether she's as excited about talking to me, but we'll find out. Alison, are you there? I am here and I'm very excited about talking to you. That's fantastic. Um, now, I've got two surnames for you here. Uh, is it Alison Swan Parente? Is that that's, correct? That's my whole name, yes. Uh, my, it's my uh, married name and my unmarried name. Okay. Well, what a fantastic selection of names. I like that. Um, okay. Now, Alison, you are, I don't know, what do I call you? The founder of the School of Artisan Food? That's right. Which is uh, something that sounds incredible. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what the School of Artisan Food does? I mean, it sounds like it says, you know, what it does on the tin, as it were. But, you know, these things can be misleading. And what is artisan food? I realise I've asked you about nine questions just to get started. Uh, well, you have, really. Yes. Well, my background is as a child psychotherapist. Um, I worked with uh, challenged and frankly, quite naughty children in the National Health Service for uh -huh. most of my working life. Uh, and I became extremely interested in um, what makes young people more resilient. And whereas psychotherapy is very good for that, uh, also working is very good for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so one of the things I became interested in was how to provide routes for employment, uh, routes into employment for young people. Um, at the very same time, I uh, retired from the National Health Service and my son started a farm shop up here. And uh, he got very fed up with me, the newly retired person, um, doing the labels in his farm shop for him and generally interfering. And he said, just go and do something else. I don't care what it is, do something <laughs> And that inspired you? Well, that what I did was I realised that the bread in the farm shop was rubbish uh, and that it was very difficult to find good bread anywhere. Uh, it was a long time ago. This was about 14 years ago, 13 years ago. There wasn't very much good bread anywhere. No. Um, and so I was lucky enough to be able to start a bakery. And I started the bakery with someone called Andrew Whitley, who is my hero and who is a wonderful baker and um, thinker about food and grains and health and uh, basically changing the food system. And he was incredibly helpful to me and helped me start um, the bakery. But as we were building the bakery and putting in the wood oven fires, we looked around for a baker and we couldn't find one um, because there were very, very few people who knew how to make long fermentation breads. Mm -hmm. So... Um, we looked and we looked and we finally found Roman the baker in Lusaka. He was a Polish baker in Lusaka. 
And we thought this is really, you know, a bit kind of difficult having to look all over the world for bakers. We'd better see if we can train um, people to become bakers. And that kind of fitted in, you know, the interest in bread and then my interest in young people and how to find ways that they could have good and really satisfying work came together there. And um, we made an application to the local development agency, the East Midlands Development Agency, and they incredibly kindly gave us a lot of money to start the school. Oh, that's nice of them, isn't it? <laughs> I expect it was a lengthy, difficult and um, very thorough application. It certainly was. It yeah. certainly was. We left no stone unturned. Amazing. Okay. Wow. I asked you a lot of questions on the way in and um, you've done a brilliant job of answering them. So we, uh, we spoke briefly about being up here and then you gave us a clue with East Midlands. But can you refine that geographical location for us so we know exactly where you are? Well, we are right in the middle of Sherwood Forest. Um, we're in North Nottinghamshire. We're an hour from Nottingham to the south and three quarters of an hour from Sheffield to the north. We've got Lincoln um, another hour away to the east and Manchester not too very far away to the west. So we are right in the middle of England. Brilliant. So not handy for the beach, but pretty good for more or less everything else. Exactly. We've got the M1 on one side of us and the A1 on the other. There you go. A choice of two roads. Brilliant. Okay, Alison, that's amazing. So that basically founded the school by accident. Is that what we're going with? Well, I have to say it was slightly by accident because when I was, you know, uh, in my 40s, for example, I would never have imagined having a food school. Never. No. Well, I mean, my son is 13. And he has asked me twice in the last two months what I think he should do for a job when he leaves school. And I really like to help him. I wish I had a little bag, you know, that, that knew, you know, full of answers to, to give him. But annoyingly for him and frustratingly for me, I've had to say, I still don't quite know what I'm going to do when I grow up, Isaac. So, you know, how, how can I help you? <laughs> so so I, I'm, I'm not surprised at all that you've gone on to do something completely different later in life. I think that's fantastic and, and, and lots of people do it and we should have more of it. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm right behind you. So that was how we got going. And then what's happened since then? Because it's my understanding that the School of Artisan Food is a bit more than a bakery training area. Well, that's completely right, actually. Um, we started off with one-year diplomas in baking, cheesemaking, and charcuterie, and then doing a lot of short courses around that in artisan uh, production subjects, uh, like ice cream, uh, cider making, all kinds of uh, non-industrial production methods. Uh, and it turns out that we specialised in baking in the end because long courses for cheesemakers are very impractical and actually quite expensive. Uh, and butchers, uh, you can't teach butchers in a year. Um, it's such an old-fashioned trade. Uh, most butchers are not allowed to even start seeming a beast until they've been scrubbing tables down for two years. So uh, butchery teachers find it very difficult to teach people quickly. 
so we moved on to doing a uh, diploma in baking, uh, which is our own diploma. And then uh, we realized that we would, part of our aim and part of our ethos was really to uh, provide access for as many people as possible. And we started off with people having to pay for the courses. Uh, but we also quickly formed as a charitable trust so that we could fundraise for bursaries for people to do the course and be paid by other people. So even from the very beginning, we um, tried to have as wide an access to the courses as possible. And several charitable trusts and local people were very, very uh, generous and gave us bursaries so that we could train people uh, and they would be paid for. And during that time, we also established refugee bursaries because I'm very committed to having at least part of our student body being refugees because they can add so much to what we do yeah. and we can help them uh, use what are often very, very uh, advanced skills from their countries of origin. Mm -hmm but to convert them into a, a kind of more culturally British um, way of working so that they can sell what they're making. So anyway, wow. so that's the refugee bursaries. Then uh, we really wanted to make it even more accessible. And so we uh, teamed up with Nottingham Trent University to uh, do a foundation degree in artisan food. Wow. And that means that um, young people can come to us for two years as a foundation degree and learn uh, baking, patisserie, cheese making, and a bit of butchery, and also think a lot about the food system. Mm -hmm. And now, this year, we're just uh, negotiating to do a top-up so that that becomes a BSc, and that will allow many more foreign students to come to us too, because... Uh, Amazing, amazing. And it means that they also are eligible for student loans, uh -huh. which means that many more people can uh, join us without um, having to break the bank. Brilliant. Uh, very important at this time. Okay, so just very quickly then, one thing that I've picked up from that, uh, the charitable trusts and whatnot, uh, are you a not-profit? Are you a B Corps? What's the organisation? How do you structure we are, it? We are a registered charity and a company limited by guarantee. And that last bit is a governance issue. It's uh -huh. to do with uh, the trustees. Um, but we're completely not-for-profit. Fantastic. I mean, uh, that's brilliant. And actually, in the last uh, couple of years, we have moved um, our some of our centre of gravity uh, a, a little bit away from the short courses that we do uh, and we're doing much more community work so we have a, a big project called best food forward and that's talking to gps and um, health professionals and schools about good food and the impact that good food has on health and well-being wow which we are only beginning to scratch the surface of our understanding uh, with exactly that. yeah yeah so wow i mean what an exciting thing to be involved with and what an exciting time to be involved with it um so we're moving away from shorter courses but something caught my eye when i was doing my naughty research on your establishment and i saw something about a summer school and that that well i have to say 
I probably haven't got time to go off and, and spend time immersing myself with other artists and foodies, although I would really love to do that and I would definitely benefit from it. Um, I see you've got a summer school running. What's that all about? Well, you have no excuse not to come to it, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm in. I didn't take much convincing, did I? <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. Well, the thing about this, we've, we've always done a summer school and we've, we they're very, very popular and we're very um, uh, well-placed to do it. One of the reasons is that we're based on a big rural estate so uh, we're in wonderful countryside. Uh, Sherwood wow. Forest is really very beautiful and we, it's surrounded by woodland and there's a very big historic house near to uh, the school. And one of the things that is uh, attractive about the summer school is that it's very uh, contained and it's very safe, but it's also, uh, there's a lot of freedom to roam and to uh, see uh, lots of the countryside around so and we also have uh, our own accommodation on the estate uh, so that's one good thing about it um, it's four weeks and we are incredibly lucky in the area because we have a real hub of food businesses mm -hmm. we have an artisan bakery we have a brewery we have pizza makers. We have a wonderful cheesemaker near us, um, Joe Schneider, who makes Stitchelton cheese, which is sold all over the world. Blessed be the um, cheesemakers. Blessed be the cheesemakers. <laughs> and uh, we have uh, all kinds of food businesses that people can visit. We also have a, a windmill, a proper, a proper windmill. Wow. Uh, so there are all kinds of places that can be visited, but the main part of the summer school is uh, in the school itself. And of course, we have amazing facilities at the school. We have um, a dedicated butchery. We have a wonderful dairy with maturing rooms and vats and a really state-of-the-art dairy. We have two big bakery training rooms. So we can uh, have four weeks of really immersing yourself in patisserie, in baking, especially in heritage grains and, and unusual uh, types of um, baking. Then we can do some charcuterie and barbecuing, and because it's outside, it's in August, it's a lovely time of year to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so those kind of, we can do all of those subjects, and it isn't, you know, mucking about actually it's quite serious and uh it's serious but it's also incredibly good fun and what you go away with is you go away with a, a lifetime of kind of skills that you can build on uh, for the rest of your life you know you've learned how to laminate pastry you've learned how to make proper puff pastry and that's the basis of all of viennoiserie and a lot of patisserie mm -hmm. you've learned how to make long fermentation breads and make your own starters uh, you've learned how to make salami from uh, you there are all kinds of things you've learned which are life skills really really yeah. good life skills that you can yeah. take away you can build on them if you want to do a career in hospitality or or, or um, food making but it's not necessarily the summer school really isn't necessarily for a career it's so that you can really find yourself in the middle of the culture of 
non-industrial cooking. Amazing. Well, it sounds to me like an absolute haven of wonderfulness and common sense. And I would love to visit and I've made a note. So you watch out because <laughs> I might be on my way. Um, August is a busy time for me, but I'll see if I can manage to get down. Uh, and I'm sure some of our listeners will be fascinated by that. And and I love the idea that it's not just open to people who, who want to be professionals. And I really like the idea that you're sort of scattering seeds of goodness into people's lives that will later grow and you know because food is a journey uh, in my experience anyway um wow that's a lot to download there and i'm i'm really excited um to be talking to you today alison and i know you're going to have three really good things to change about the world of food but before we dive into that can you just give me some boring pointers so if i do want to come to the summer school or i want to find out more about you um do I just stick School of Artisan Food into Google? Stick School of Artisan Food into Google, really. And then uh, just scroll down to the summer school when you get to our landing page. Brilliant. That's super easy. And uh, you're, uh, I don't know, are you around on social media? Do you have a team for that sort of thing? We do. We ha- we're on Twitter. Um, I think it's just called Artisan School on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. And we're not on TikTok. Okay. Oh, well, that's all right. Nor am I. I think that's for the kids, isn't it? Um, what I will do is I'll stick all of those links in the show notes. Uh, so they'll be below the, the, the podcast when, when this is broadcast. And anyone that wants to click on those and follow up and come and find you will find it very easy to do so via that link. Okay. Alison, are you ready to enter Madam's Cast land where the world becomes malleable and you can change things about the world of food? I'm only too ready. That's the problem. I can bang on about this forever. <laughs> well, don't worry. You're in the right place. And with over 10,000 downloads to date, I can tell you there are other people out there who are interested in this too. Don't worry. It's not just an echo chamber. We are getting somewhere. So, Alison, you're more than ready to dive into the Madam's Cast land and change three things about the world of food. And I am very excited, along with the other listeners here, to find out what they are. Uh, are you are you prepared? Are you going to jump in? I am prepared. I hope they're not too boring. <laughs> well, one man's boring is another person's fascinating. And the great thing about podcasts is if you get bored of one halfway through or you don't like a guest, you can, you can jump off. Not that that has ever happened to a listener of the Madam's cast, let's be clear. Um, but, you know, I think sometimes uh, the, the reason for me, in fact, creating this podcast and it being very old fashioned, hardly edited and very long format is that I think we need to take the time to have longer discussions, bits of which some people will find boring, but that's deep information and we need it. And if you don't have grown up long term conversations about stuff, nothing ever really changes. So that's why we're here. So feel free to get stuck in. Alison, what's the first thing you'd like to change about the world of food? I would like to uh, change, I mean, it's there's so much to change. It's really difficult to know where to start. But I'd like to start with ultra-high processed food. Oh, and yes. I would like to uh, really talk about not how you can change ultra-high processed food, because, you know, you're not going to change it. Uh, there's a huge amount of it. Uh, it's everywhere. There are very good reasons why it is everywhere. It's very cheap to produce. Um, It's uh, often uh, addictive. It's quite uh, 
convenient, um, it's quite cheap, you know, there are all kinds of reasons why uh, people would want to eat it. Uh, and uh, there are all kinds of reasons why people would want to manufacture it. Um, and I think that that's really the first thing, if I was going to be, if I had a magic wand and I could change everything, I think what I would do is I would go back to 19, uh, the late 1950s, the early 1960s, when um, the food industry felt that uh, technology had really liberated them it had liberated women in some ways it had liberated everyone because they were able to produce this very cheap very convenient food and i would like to go back to that time and have a magic you know a crystal ball and show people just how much they lost in so many ways uh when that revolution happened Okay. Um, yes. I'm going to jump in because before we go back there and show them the, you know, the future that they're accidentally creating, albeit with good intention, can you give us an example of ultra high processed food? Because I've got a few banging around in my head, but some people might not be quite sure where we draw that line. Well, I think Cheerios are quite a good example of ultra high processed food. They look pretty good. They taste rather delicious. They've got a lot of fiber in them or a bit of fiber in them. Uh, but they also have lots of stuff in them to make them taste particularly nice. They have uh, lots of stuff in them to make them look like each other, to keep them very uniform. They have stuff in them to uh, give them a long shelf life. Mm -hmm. And they have quite a lot of added sugar and salt. Mm, yeah. Actually, I, hope, I hope I hope that is a good example. I suddenly think that I might be, um, you know, saying something terrible. And... <laughs> well, don't worry about that. I'm that constantly guilty of that. Example. That would be my example. I might be I might be not entirely accurate about that, but that's my. But what I'm thinking about really is cereals in general. Let's not say Cheerios. Cereals in general, as you know, have got an awful lot of added stuff. Very little nutrition. They look as if they're nutritious. They've got, you know, labels saying they're full of vitamins, but they're added vitamins. And a lot of added stuff uh, really stops. It's not instantly bioavailable because it's it's artificial. Mm. So we don't get the benefit from it. It's just exactly. that it goes through the human system and out exactly. the other end and that's that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Right. So ultra high processed foods. Um, so I interrupted your flow there to get that example. And I apologize for that. So we're talking um, 1950s, 1960s. Yes. Yeah. The emergence of this. And that, that's moved outside the world of cereal now. And we have ultra high processed foods in various different forms. Uh, I think is that right if I say that? Absolutely. Every food, almost everything that we eat is processed. You know, if you boil an egg, you've processed the egg by boiling it. Yeah. So we can't really talk about processed food because every time we cook, we're processing food. Agreed. Uh, but we're talking about um, things like, you know, spreads. Uh, margarine was a very good example of an ultra high processed food. Uh, if you look at ice creams uh, and the emulsifiers and the strange things that make them into odd uh, textures. 
uh, we're talking about uh, the, we're talking about a lot of the food that you get in takeaways and uh, up in this part of the country we have more takeaways per square foot than anywhere else in the country really yeah, absolutely. We've a big, big takeaway culture um, for all kinds of social reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, there are big food deserts. Uh, there are um, a lot of people who have worked very hard in jobs where it's been quite hard. You know, they haven't had time to go home and cook particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been all kinds of reasons. Uh, but in any, I mean, in any kind of secondary school in the country, you'll see kids rushing out at lunchtime and going to the chicken shop or going to KFC or going to uh, a takeaway and buying what are actually ultra high processed foods for lunch. And this is a terrible situation um, because they're actually, really, really not good for uh, especially young growing um, organisms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Um, about the best we can say for them really is that they're not immediately toxic, but long term, they're not going to do you any favours. And I think you I think it's it's more serious than that. I I don't I, I, I don't I think in some ways they are immediately not very good for you at all. And I think in terms of looking at um, uh, populations, you can see a, a really a curve on the levels of obesity when these kinds of foods started uh, coming into general circulation. I think probably there isn't enough evidence yet and there haven't been enough huge studies to prove how bad they are for you. Uh, and we can't say that that evidence is there, but there's an increasing amount of it. And there are all kinds of theories, you know, we could go in in some detail in, into what this kind of food does to your, your microbiome and what it does to your whole, uh, whole body. Um, but I think that the indications are that it, it really is not at all good for you and is quite uh, implicated in metabolic illnesses like diabetes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those, we're waiting for the science to catch up with the blatant yeah. obvious. Um, and, you know, certainly from my background, I can certainly agree that I look at that and I think that's alarming and worrying. And one of the big things ultra high processed foods always brings to mind for me is you know, a lot of the ingredients for ultra high processed foods are ultra high processed before they get, before they get added. So, like, I mean, things like vegetable oils. I mean, I was horrified when I found out the process. I mean, in my head, I think I thought that you, if you squeezed a carrot hard enough, eventually you got some oil out of it. And of course, that's not the case. And all the seed oils that we're seeing in diets these days, um, if those are extracted in a, in, in a very interesting way i think is a good way of putting it i'm not talking about cold pressed whole seed oils like olive oil and things like that but you know uh refined sunflower oils yeah absolutely like okay well so, so i'm going to go back to uh the 1950s and 1960s and, and and wish that people had been able to see what was going to happen in the future but then my second thing i think mm-hmm is to 
think about how um, how to change that now because I've been talking to you about these um, uh, fast food outlets and where you get uh, get junk food really and um, uh, how how easy it is for young people and I'm always thinking about young people here how easy it is for young people to get hold of it so the second thing I would do to change that is to think about how young people learn about that particularly in secondary schools Mm -hmm. the reason I'm choosing secondary schools is because there is a lot of incredibly good work going on in primary schools and when you talk to um younger children in primary schools about food. Um, I think that there are quite a lot of, um, there's quite a lot of support. People know how to uh, talk to very young children about it. Well, there isn't nearly enough support, and that's my third thing, really. Uh, But I'm going to concentrate on secondary schools at the moment. And I think the second thing I would choose is for, kitchens to be changed in secondary schools for people to reinstate the kitchens that used to be in secondary schools and aren't there anymore because they were taken away when people schools were given a a a choice about whether they could do their cooking in-house as it were or contract out to get um food and it was so much more convenient and cheaper to get contracted out food that they took out all the kitchens so if you want to teach anything about food to young people in secondary schools many many of them just don't have the place that Mm. they can go and learn to cook Mm. Um, so i would reinstate kitchens in secondary schools no no argument from me i don't care where you want to put the new kitchens i'm all about the new kitchens uh (laughs) i can never i always think anywhere could be a good kitchen if you had the time um so secondary schools that's really interesting um, my, I wonder if it's different in Scotland because my son is currently doing food tech as part of his um, uh, curriculum at school up here. But that, you know, I mean, it is only sort of an hour every week for about a third of the year. So it's not huge, is it? Uh, no, it isn't huge. Uh, and food tech is really, it's part of design and technology. Mm-hmm. The person who's teaching textiles is often teaching food at the same time. Uh, and one of the things that I would change, I would change so many things, but one of the things that I would change would be to um, uh, have separate uh, food teaching, but food to be a not just in, in personal and social health classes, but for there to be a a food curriculum and there should be a food curriculum Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, for example in the national food strategy um, there was a lot of advice given about how food could be taught in schools Um, but it has all kind of uh, been dropped by the wayside so I think proper teaching about food in schools would be really really important yeah yeah Um, I agree I think he is probably just uh, Scotland may be a bit better than England, but it it is not very much, I have to say. And of course, if you have a, a culture where food, there's a whole school food plan, then everything can be integrated. You can have uh, 
a chef, the school, the person who's cooking in the school will be very interested in uh, showing young people through what they eat about food in general. You can insert food into any curriculum there is, you know, that chemistry, physics, geography, you know, cultural uh, teaching. Food is in all of it, and it's such a good way uh, to get into lots and lots of subjects. But it isn't just that it's interesting. It is absolutely crucial, because if young people don't know about food and what it's doing to them, then it's going to... uh, and what it can do for them that's very, very good. It isn't just that, oh, you've got to avoid lots of food because it's bad. Yeah. One of the really exciting and lovely things to learn at school is, is just how good food can be for you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The first time you break open a real croissant that's been made with butter and properly fermented, um, and you're just mind blown by how incredible that really is compared to... I mean, most people haven't experienced a real croissant these days. That's right. Uh, But one of the things that I think needs to uh, be thought about, especially in secondary schools, is that uh, kids actually know quite well uh, what it is to eat good food. I mean, you know, the message gets through somehow that uh, if... It isn't that hard to eat healthily. You know, you cut down on quite a lot of meat. You eat lots of plants. You don't eat too much sugar. You don't eat quite as much. And actually, you're pretty much set up to be eating well with those four rules. Uh They don't do it. And they don't do it because um, the food that they're getting, the ultra-high processed food that they're getting from the chip shop, is as I said before, delicious and cheap and available and addictive in some kind of rather minor way, but it is addictive. Uh, And so my own view about this is that you can say most of those things about about soft drugs, and you would never tell kids not to take drugs because they'll, you know, they it's interesting, it's fun, they, they go and do it. Mm. But what you can do is you can say, if you do, if you do carry on doing this, let's have a look and see what it might be doing to you. And that's the interesting thing. And I think we can do exactly the same thing with ultra high processed food. You can you can't say to a teenager, "Don't eat it." You can't say to a mum, "Don't give it to people um, because it's bad for them," because uh, you anyone who's told not to do something will become quite oppositional about it. But yeah. you can educate them about it. So I am passionate about the education uh, of young people. Uh, about good food that's what I really that's my thing amazing amazing look um, education and food come up a lot on the madam's cast as you can imagine it's a theme uh, that's woven through so many episodes I've I've lost count but rarely have I spoken to someone who's got such a good you know a a strategy formed in their head of how we go about making that better um can we not put you in charge of that I mean, I'm sure I've got a hotline to the Department for Education here somewhere. We can just change that. Um, 
it's it's almost i go a step further than you actually i think it's almost perverse the way that children are you know they're taught in health and social care and in science about nutrition um and what a healthy diet is and yet it's almost impossible for them to acquire that healthy diet at school exactly they put mm-hmm. so many challenges in the way of it and i would also extend that to saying okay the school should be you know it should have its playing fields and it should have land outside of those where practical and that should be a, a class a week for everybody growing the food some of which is you know all of which is going to get used by the school so that the whole process can gather people in and they can begin to understand that food and life are just different words for the same thing and if you have a good one it's gonna <laughs> it's gonna be better for you okay that's me with my soapbox stealing your point and I apologize <laughs> for that. my soapbox goes on from exactly your point here which is that my third thing about change about food is for government to have a plan mm. and um if government has a, a food plan then every uh, other part of uh, what's going on in the country can have a food plan and for example schools can have a food plan yeah so when you go and talk to head teachers about um, having whole school uh, food cultures there's nothing most of them would like more but they just don't have the time or the resources mm-hmm. so if you're trying to run a school you're doing very well to get your kids out reading and writing and that's your primary job after the pandemic it was you know they've got a whole cohort of kids who uh, had to learn at home Uh, things were very very difficult and they're trying now all uh, all the teachers that we talk to are just trying to get kids through GCSEs they they you know thinking about food is a tremendous luxury for them Um, So why is that? Partly it's because of, you know, all of those things around um, uh, how the country is being run. But if we think specifically about food, it really is very, very scandalous. So they they commission a national food strategy. Mm, Yes. Uh, They read it. It's a it's a pretty good food strategy. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's it's pretty good. It's it's addresses um, things like you know low carbon, low impact, healthy diets, shorter supply chains, you know, decentralizing, building social resilience, you know, training for skills. It's got all of those things in it. The government produces a white paper later, which mostly ignores all of it (laughs) and panics about um, uh, the cost of living which of course uh, and and food inflation which is now 16.8 percent which is unbelievable and so the government panics about you know oh gosh well we can't stop junk food advertising because you know we much more importantly we should do special deals so people can afford food. You know, it's just completely uh, unjoined up. I think that what my, the, the third thing that I would change really is for government to start joining up their thinking. Mm, around rather than, food. yeah, yeah, rather and than not, just commissioning more reports and then ignoring them. And not leaving it to the supermarkets 
to produce government policy. I mean, there is no government policy. So the supermarkets have got these extraordinary kind of deals with their suppliers um, where they're uh, fixing prices, really. Mm-hmm. And the government is, this is not the government fixing prices. This is the supermarkets in their great fiefdoms uh, really predicating what happens in the, or, or directing what happens in the economy. So that when there are shocks, and big shocks we've had, as as we all know, um, the food system kind of grinds to a halt. Uh, and there is no government food plan. There's nothing to do with people working in the fields. There's nothing to do with um, helping uh, resource education. Uh, we need a proper government food plan. Wow. I'm with you. Let's march on Westminster and make that happen. Um, it's not a surprise to me <clears throat> that, um, that the national food strategy has been largely ignored. Uh, it seems to be a habit uh, of governments to commission lengthy, expensive um, reports uh, from incredibly intelligent people who go off and do very diligent research. And it's then put in a box and ignored uh, or, or thrown on the bonfire, it seems. Um, so, okay, so food inflation running at an all-time high, uh, is that is that because we've had food, in brackets, too cheaply for too long, or have we hidden the cost of that elsewhere? And how do we, how do we begin to produce food at a level that's affordable for everyone, but is better food, uh, without that... Um, I mean, some of that is understanding that food has a value and, and attributing a bit more of perhaps your, your budget to the value of your food. Um, but is it, you know, are we looking at this the wrong way around? Do we just need to pay more for our food? I mean, how does that work for people who've got less? And, you know, how do we get great food out to more people? I mean, these are the big questions, aren't they? And I <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I certainly can't answer them. Um, I'm just a psychotherapist who started a food school. Well, you're doing very well so far. I've had an awful lot of sensible chat from you, and that's why I'm asking, because I think you might have an answer or two up your sleeve, or at least an inkling. Well, I think supporting local producers and um, finding ways for their food to get into the supply chain in a fair way is is one way to start. I think we have been paying too little for food. And I think that there's a tremendous problem around that. I I don't, because uh, if you're very, if you're really struggling in the present cost of living crisis, for example, it's very hard for people uh, to come out and say, well, actually, you should be paying more for your food. Absolutely agree. Um, yeah. So I think it, I think there are some real problems. With, it, there has to be a structural and political answer to it. And I think that it's interesting that you and I are struggling on a podcast to think about this, when in fact uh, we have elected and resourced Um, government ministers who aren't struggling about it and who seem not to be doing very much about it. So I think it does go back to uh, thinking about, you know, DEFRA, thinking about the um, education department, thinking about people who should all be talking to each other about 
you know, agricultural policy, uh, thinking about how to, you know, where to uh, assign power in terms of purchasing, thinking about, you know, what we can do now. We have what, in my view, is a, a disastrous Brexit policy, but is has is there now, so we can't, you know, just moan about it. We have to do something about it. Uh, I think if you're looking at cheap food, you're looking at, uh, you know, the ultra high processing, but you're also looking at the trade deals, and you're looking at uh, the 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 kind of cost to health of, of what uh, cheap food is. You're talking about our meat coming from Australia, which does seem a little peculiar in the middle of a uh, crisis um, around the climate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that one of the things I think we have to do is we have to go back and, and rethink our relationship with Europe post-Brexit, I mean, we're, which I think we're just beginning to do. But um, it's so complicated, isn't it? It is. It is. And at the moment, I'm sort of with you, the government seems to be hell-bent on you know, not over, not not sort of intervening too much with legislation in terms of you know food quality and content, um, and then mostly leaving the other problems to the third sector to sort out. So, if you do, you know, if you can't afford to feed yourself, it's off to the food bank with you, um, and that is, you know, is part of life, and it's a good thing. You know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have food banks, but it is slightly alarming that it seems to be government policy to just leave it to the third sector to sort out while they just carry on business as usual. But um, I'm saying that we shouldn't have food banks. Of course we shouldn't have food banks. We shouldn't be living in a country where our food system is so broken that we are having to have food banks. I mean, it isn't just the food system that's broken, but but our response is to, you know, is to leave it to the third sector, as you say. Although I have to say that um, in this area up here, we uh, at the school we're a member of the uh, Bassett North Food Insecurity Network, and that is a an alliance between um, the third sector and the voluntary sector and the county council and the district council, and that seems to be working quite well on a local level. Of course, we would then look to central government to produce some decent um, uh, policies. Uh But given that we are firefighting, the firefighting as um, as a cooperation between the statutory and the voluntary sector is quite impressive. Lots of good people doing stuff at a regional level. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, the problem with the central government is that it is central and we do need to devolve, you know, some of those responsibilities. Absolutely. And, and, you know, get on and sort it out. And I think what happens is you start getting people like yourselves and others sorting things out. And then that, that frustration with the government comes back because you're like, well, we've done it here. You need to roll this out. We need to help us grow this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then that becomes a different, a different conversation. But then does sort of tend to bump into the dead end that is um, that is Whitehall. But okay. Yeah. Um, but meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, you know, we do our bit, and we, um, a, apart from the community work that we're doing around food insecurity, and we're also, we are. Um, doing short courses in 
uh, and teaching people skills that would have been lost otherwise in terms of uh, manufacture, in terms of food production. Yes. So that's one of the real pleasures of working at the school is um, people really uh, keeping up um, really the knowledge about how to make good food, how to make good long fermenting breads, you know, that really are a little bit better for your digestion. Uh, and um, and that kind of thing. And also, because we have the skills in teaching uh, how to cook, um, those kind of foods, we also have lots of our staff are very good at just uh, teaching cooking, and so we're doing quite a lot of work uh, with, for example, people who are using food hubs, uh, teaching them how to cook the weird stuff that's coming into food hubs because there's, because the food is um, surplus uh, food from supermarkets. It's often food that people haven't bought because they don't recognise it. Yeah. Uh, and so that food goes into the food hubs and people still don't recognize it when they see it in the food hubs. So <laughs> learning how to cook is really important. Yeah, 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 I agree. I, I think for me, that's ultimately the tool because um, not um, ultimately um, it's very difficult. Sorry, someone walked into the recording room then and I've completely lost the track of <laughs> 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 what I was talking about. Um, uh, okay, so yeah, cookery, I think is, you know, is ultimately the tool because once you start to make a few things for yourself that are better and more tasty, the more you want to cook for yourself, the more you're interested in what's in your food. And for me, that's always been the hook. You know, I was a greedy boy. I was definitely eating the wrong things at school, like everybody else was back in the, um, well, I'm not going to say when it was, <laughs> but I think, you know, for me, I think that, that desire to understand a little bit more was all based on flavor and reward. And when you start to eat good bread or you start to, you know, simply make your own sauce or, or, or whatever it is, whatever that simple thing is. It's such a joy. I mean, one of the things that, you know, you can really engage uh, children with or engage anyone with, that certainly lots and lots of adults have a very good time at the school, is just the magic of putting, for example, flour and salt and water together, leaving it for a bit, and it in the end it's bread. You know, you have to do a few things to it. But there's almost nothing else there. And it, it bubbles, it rises, it produces it's fantastic. It's a wonderful process to watch. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm totally with you. Wow. Well, um that was Fantastic. Thank you very much for changing those three things about the world of food. Uh, and, uh, you know, I really enjoyed uh, cruising through them with you. And I know that we could sit here and, and speak for hours and hours about some detail and maybe... We'll I get a bit it. pompous about it. <laughs> well, look, you know, I mean, that is difficult, isn't it? We do sometimes feel um, socially awkward about preaching uh, or about talking about these things. And and it's, it is difficult. It is difficult because you don't want to come across as some sort of disengaging, boring, preachy person when you, you know, when you start talking about these problems. And it's very difficult not to sound patronising as well at times. I think when you know if you're talking about people with yeah. basic cooking skills, which is not their fault, um, uh, they just don't have them. You might have three generations living in 
one family that have never cooked at this point. Exactly. Um, and so I don't really place the blame for that with them or even think it's, I certainly don't think it's shameful, but it's difficult when you're talking about it and you're eulogizing over the brilliance of a simple homemade vegetable stew or vegetable soup or whatever it is that you've just made today that you feel great about. It's very difficult not to sound like you're patronizing other people when you say, oh, if only everyone could cook like this, or if only everyone was eating like this, the world would be a better place. But it doesn't change the fact that I believe that's true. Uh, and I look forward to the day when everyone is making their own uh, minestra for the season. But there we go. Oh, yeah. that's, that's me. Um, <laughs> fantastic. So those are all great things. And, and I'm sure we'll generate some feedback from the listeners and, and uh, lots of nodding along and questions uh, raised as we've, as we've gone through it. Um, you get another three little jobs before I'm allowed to boot you off the show, if that's okay, Alison. Would you would you like to take part in the frivolous uh, ending of the show? Indeed. <laughs> Excellent. You have three remaining tasks. The first one is almost impossible. You have to choose a food book that you couldn't live without. Um, you have to then just choose a drink that you might enjoy drinking whilst you're flicking through that book. And then you get to nominate somebody else to come on the Madam's cast. And, you know, it's not a, an enforced kidnap situation. They don't have to do it. It's just an enjoyable uh, thing for us to discuss and has thrown up some good leads in the past to great. I guess it has. Yeah. Yeah. So well worth it. Um, let's, what would you like to do first? We have your book first. Yes. Well, I was thinking about this. I'm such a kind of slapdash cook uh, and such an intuitive book. Uh, cook that um, I it's it's okay if I lose all my cookbooks I'm going to be okay mm -hmm. so there's no cookbook that I couldn't do without um, however there are a million cookbooks that I completely love and use <laughs> from time to time and so I certainly read cookbooks to get ideas I'm not a great follower of recipes but oddly enough, the book that I've chosen is the most strict recipe-following book of all. So it would just bring is is um, mastering the art of French cooking. Wow. It's Julia Child's book. Do you know them? Uh, I have yes, seen that. Yeah, they are wonderful. There are two volumes of them, and Julia Child uh, was an American who, as you know, went to. Paris and learned to cook in Paris and then went back to America and decided to write this incredibly minute step-by-step -step, um, cookbook about how to uh, cook classic French cuisine. Didn't she co-author it with two other people? Yes, she, she did. initially produced it Long in the bet. first place and it was yeah. so badly published that they went to her and said, can you help? And then they yeah. just gave up and started again. Yeah, and it's just a fabulous book. And if I, if I, um, there are a couple of people that I go to if I think, oh, I can't remember how to do that. Um, I, I do that with Darina Allen sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, and there are lots of very exotic cookbooks that I use. But for example, I was just looking at this this morning. This is the Creme Patissière <laughs> from Ju Julia Ch Child. And you think, oh, am I, have I, got everything in it and it's so detailed uh it gives you the exact ingredients it tells you it's a little bit about its history and then you know it shows you exactly how to do it two and a quarter ounces of sisterly flour beat in the flour three quarters of a pint of boiling milk beat the yolk 
beating the yolk mixture, gradually pour on the boiling milk in a thin stream of drops. You know, it's so incredibly detailed and helpful uh, that you actually feel that you are following a proper tradition. And you can imagine when you're making this creme pâtissière that you're in some kitchen somewhere in, I don't know, in Normandy, uh, and that you're following in the footsteps of lots and lots of actually domestic women who are doing this. So I feel very culturally uh, part of a history when I'm cooking from it. Amazing. Amazing. And I love that way you've conjured the sim, you know, the creme patisserie is such an overlooked thing. In fact, I remember being very disappointed. I think after I left college, I went to work in France, just in a, in a ski chalet for an English company. So it wasn't, you know, as great as it would, could have been. But one of the things you could buy from the supply company that we had to use was tins of creme patisserie. Yeah, yeah. I, remember, I remember looking at that and thinking, you cannot possibly be serious. We're right in the middle of the Rhone Alps with incredible bakeries all around us. Exactly. Someone, if not, if not me, you know, someone's going to come and arrest me if I buy that. <laughs> That's the difference between ultra high processed food and a food from scratch. Yeah. And one has the culture, the tradition, the feeling, the ingredients. You know, you can control the ingredients, you can control the technique. And the other is commodified and you are at a huge distance from it. Mm -hmm. Agreed, agreed. Wow, so there's a book, good way of doing it. That's a nice choice. And uh, I love your raison for that. That's fantastic. So uh, what, what might you have to drink while you were sitting and flicking through your Julia Child's um, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, Volume 1 and Volume 2? Well, there are two things that I could have. Um, <laughs> Go on, the, I'll let you have two. <laughs> two. Well, one is my husband's kombucha. Oh, yeah, very nice. He's, he's a, a, a fantastic fermenter. And um, he makes really, really good kombucha. It's a bit cloudy. It's a bit... Um, uh, rough around the edges um but if you dilute it half and half with fizzy water it is really really delicious uh, and i know it's good for me i know he's gone to a lot of trouble making it um and uh that's what i would drink the other thing i'm afraid to say i've just had it once in my life and it was so good that if someone could once more in my whole life give it to me a glass of 2014 Chassagne Montrachet. Goodness me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't think I've got a bottle of that vintage kicking around, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm sure somebody does. <laughs> it's just such a, you know, it's one of those things. It's like uh, like an un, unheard of luxury, really. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brilliant. I love that. That's fantastic. Uh, okay. And uh, just lastly, then, before I, I promise I won't take up any more of your very valuable time, I'm going to let you get back to changing the world one cookery student at a time, which sounds like what you're doing. And I'm very excited to hopefully pop down and find out a little bit more about it. Um, can you possibly nominate somebody else to come on the Madam's Cast and have a chat about all things the world of food? Well, I haven't talked to her about it, but one of the uh, at the school um, before lockdown, and we're hoping to do it again. We we had a lecture series called Food for Thought, and we would kind of look up people who were doing very interesting stuff and try to get them 
down to talk to us over a weekend uh, right at the beginning of their careers. And we had to speak with us a fantastic woman called uh, Nicole Pisani. Do you know Nicole? No. So Nicole Pisani is, she worked at Ottolenghi as a chef um, a long time ago. And then she started working in a primary school in Hackney called, I think, Gatehurst School. Ah, okay, Uh, I think I know who that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she uh, went in and she came and talked to us with her friend Ollie when they had done the first year of going into the kitchen at Gatehurst. And from becoming a chef in a primary school kitchen, she has started this network of chefs in schools. And she is just a wonderful educator. She um, is brilliant with kids, brilliant with staff, um, brilliant with food, and also ambitious for changing um, the culture around school meals. Uh, And she's uh, incredibly nice, too. Oh, that sounds like an impossibly perfect human. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to meet her. Okay, Nicole Pisani. I'll have to um, look her up and see if we can get in touch. That's a great recommendation. Thank you very much. So you would get in touch with her through Chefs in Schools. Okay, Chefs in Schools. All right, we're getting all sorts of info here, which is great. Um, I'll look that up. Uh, Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much on lots of levels. Thank you very much for the work you're doing. Um, Thank you very much for giving up your time to come and talk to me. Uh, And, you know, just thank you very much for being a nice human and being being fun to chat to. Same to you, Tim. Same to you. It's been really, really enjoyable. That's great. And, I, you know, I think uh, we've we've covered it at the start of the show and I will put it in the show notes. But anyone wants to find out more about the work that you're currently undertaking now that you've retired. I love that idea. Um, (laughs) Changing the world one meal at a time. Uh, can find you via the Art School of Artisan Food. Um, and that, you know, is a very, very good case of labelling something what it should be. And I'm quite excited to find out more about it. I'm a bit surprised that I've not been there, actually, because for a yeah, long period of my you want, time... You want to come, and down and, come down and see us. It's really good fun. I will. I, I want to. I'm alarmed. I'm a bit surprised I haven't, because I'm sure, you know, I was definitely a cookery teacher for a few years at one point. I seem to be traipsing all over the country talking to people about food. So um, I must have missed you out somehow. I'm not sure how that happened. Um, but I'm looking forward to, to catching up, maybe coming down and dipping my toe back in and seeing what's going on down there. Um, and the summer school sounds incredible, so I expect you'll get a flurry of bookings for that off the back of bye-bye tim thank you very much it's been hugely enjoyable no it's been great to have you on Alison. thank you very much uh, i look forward to chatting with you again at some point in the future all the best bye-bye bye